0: And so that's kind of what we're starting with today, right? It's this love of God that rips the tree down, manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. It's that love of God that rips the tree down and allows us to live rightly with him and to have a new life. And so today we are going to explore the mystery of what is love just a little more today. You know, I was thinking about this over the last uh, couple days as I was preparing this message that You know, however long God blesses me to be the pastor of Restoration Church, we're going to have a long time to to discover what love is. That's going to be the topic of a lot of our conversations. Because at the end of the day, if we walk away from this place having learned a little more what it means to love one another, having learned a little bit more what it means to love God, then we have done a good thing. And we have done what we're called to do. Because we are looking to represent Jesus in the world, and his disciples will be known by their love. And so I have two goals, that you're really going to be annoyed, one, with the, with the conversation on the self-reigning heart, and second, that you're really going to be annoyed with the conversation of love. If I can really annoy you week after week about that, then we're doing a good thing, and I've accomplished the goals I've set out to do. Sound good? All right. So we're going to look into the book of Deuteronomy a little bit. There's a very central passage, one of the most central passages in all of Scripture, actually. If you have your Bibles today, open them up to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to start in the sixth chapter. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. It's very uh, early on in the Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles and you're looking for it, go to the beginning and you're going to find it uh, pretty close to the beginning. As you're looking for those texts, let me give you a little background knowledge on what's taking place here in this text in Deuteronomy. Forty years prior to Deuteronomy, God had miraculously liberated his people out of slavery under the Egyptians. And he had done that, as most of us know, by parting the Red Sea, by opening up the waters and allowing his people, the Israelites, to walk through. His incredible, miraculous liberation by God. And so after they crossed the Red Sea, God gave his people the law, his instructions on how to live rightly with him. But for some reason... The people could not live rightly with God. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed God's law. And so they wandered for 40 years in the desert until that generation of people died off. And now we have to give the new generation, their children, the law again. And so we get the book of Deuteronomy, which literally means the second law or the second giving of the law. And so Deuteronomy, starting at chapter 6, verse 1 says this. These are the commands, decrees, And laws, the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense, does it? May fear your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. I apologize, that's my fault, it's a typo. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would give us wisdom into your word this morning. These are such important words, Father, and I pray that we would learn to grasp them. I pray that we would not let them go easily, Father. I pray that they would be implanted in our hearts, implanted in our minds, implanted on our hands, Father, so that we can live rightly in relationship with you and rightly in relationship with others as you've called us to do. Let us live, let us learn to live off the right fuel of God as you were called us to do, as you've created us to do. In your name we pray these things. Amen. And so this text begins by stating that these are the decrees, these are the laws, these are the commands that I have given you. But it really doesn't say what they are, right? What, what are these decrees? What are these laws? What are these commands? Well, the Jews came together over time and they they poured and they dissected the Old Testament and over the centuries they discovered that there were six hundred and thirteen Old Testament laws. Can you imagine this? Six hundred and thirteen old testament laws so so you're a jew right? you you wake up one morning and 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 you walk and you're like man okay i got I gotta live to please God and I want to follow him faithfully so Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go take my scroll and I'm going to pull it down off the ceiling and I'm going to, oh, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, it's going to keep going and you're going to pull it all the way down to the floor and then you're going to keep stretching it across the floor and it's going to crumple up on the pile over here and you're going to have this long, long, long list of laws that you have to follow every single day because that is how you live appropriately with God by following his command. 613, is that a burden? Do you guys feel it? it's mind-blowing is it not man i can't even fathom trying to live under the pressure of of all 613 laws trying to keep them all straight and saying okay can can i turn here can i turn there can i do that can i do that i don't know is is it in the list of laws i don't know i gotta i gotta have this thing memorized and the burden has got to be heavy have any of you guys ever heard or read the book the year of living biblically by aj jacobs anybody ever heard of this A.J. Jacobs is a man who works for Esquire magazine. He makes his living by living his life in an experimental fashion. And so, for instance, for one of his articles for Esquire magazine, he chose to live his life um, by handing it out to Indians. He called it his outsourced life. And so he hired Indians to come into his household to argue with his wife, to do his dishes, to read his children bedtime stories at night, uh, to clean his house, to shovel his food into his mouth for him to eat his food for him uh, to go to work and to do his job he outsourced his life and this is one of the experiments that he chose to write about uh, another one was called um, the month of living honestly and what he tried to do was remove every filter that was between his mind and his mouth and so whatever came to mind came out of his mouth Can you imagine living in a society like that where everybody spoke what was on their mind walking into the uh (laughs) the coffee shop and you just hear this guy shouting this coffee is horrible i'm never coming here again this place is horrible that person's so rude i hate what you're wearing i mean really everything between your mind and your mouth he chose to speak and he wrote about the consequences and the experience that he had well another one probably the one he's most famous for was called the year of living biblically and his goal was to read the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, to read it all and to write on every single command that he found, every single law that he commanded. His goal was to follow every single command and law to the best that he could. Now, at the end of reading the entire scripture, he came up with 72 pages of material compiling over 700 various commands. It's a burden, right? Do you guys feel it? Here's a picture of him throughout the process. Upper left is what he looked like when he began and the bottom right is what he looked like when he ended. Because he wanted to follow all the laws. Not just the popular ones like, you know, honor your mother and father or do not murder. He wanted to follow all the laws, which there's a law that states do not trim the edges of your beard. And so he followed that law for an entire year. He did not cut his beard. He wanted to follow every single law. And at the conclusion of this all, he he had a couple of profound insights. Now, when he began, he was a Jewish agnostic. And he was still a Jewish agnostic when he concluded. He, this This experiment did not convert him by any means. But he did realize that the Bible is a very sacred text and it needs to be honored. It's, it's a text that needs to be held in high regard. And it's got so many profound insights and good things to live by. But he also realized that it was impossible to follow every law in Scripture. That it was impossible to follow every decree. It was impossible to follow every command that God had given his people. He just couldn't do it. Especially in a world like today, he just could not do it. The law, right, Stone an adulterer. How was he to do that? Well, he did carry around a uh, pocket full of pebbles. And so if he ran into someone who claimed to be an adulterer, he would make sure to throw a pebble at him. But he felt the burden of this. How, how do you follow 613 laws like the Jewish people were commanded to do? Well, there were a group of people that tried to do this. They were called Pharisees. In Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees were the ones who looked at the 3, 3, 613 laws, and they said, I'm going to do all that I can to follow the, this law, this 613 laws. I'm going I'm to cross every T. I'm going to dot every I. I'm going to do all that I can to follow this thing. I'm going to look at every single law, I'm going to obey every Sabbath, I'm going to wash my hands before every meal, I'm going to do every single thing that I can possible to follow this law. And in the process, they became very legalistic, in the process they became very judgmental. Now, Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of nice things to say about the Pharisees in the New Testament in part because they tried to follow all 613 laws at the expense of mercy and at the expense of grace, at the expense of really what the law was supposed to be about in the first place. The Pharisees were the kind of people who made sure that their phylacteries, and we'll talk about phylacteries in just a minute, but a phylactery was a little box. They made sure to uh, to wave it around. It's like you have a nice gold Rolex. You want the whole world to see it, right? It was kind of like the ancient Rolex, and it's like, hey, guys, look at my phylactery. I'm following the law. Do you guys notice this? Look how good of a Jew I am. They made sure that their tassels were really long so everybody see they had prayer tassels and they would hold these tassels up when they prayed. And so they would make sure that the whole world could see how long their tassels were. They would make sure that everyone would see how good of a people they were being. They were the kind of people who would stand on street corners and they'd say these long, elaborate prayers and they would be really loud in doing so so that all of the world around them would hear how great and holy they were. But as they were caught up in following the law, they forgot about justice. They forgot about mercy, they forgot about grace, they forgot about compassion, they forgot about forgiveness, and they forgot about love. They looked at the law so closely. They examined it so closely that they could not see the big picture of what the law was trying to communicate. And so it's one of these Pharisees that approached Jesus on a day hoping to trip him up so that they could have a reason to arrest him. And the Pharisee asks him, teacher, Out of all 613 laws, which would you say is the most important? And Jesus responds by saying this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the law. All of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything rests on these two commandments. All of the instructions from God on how to live rightly with him rest on these two commandments. This one principle of loving God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That is the fulfillment, that is the totality of the law. Paul puts it this way in Romans 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment, right? All the other 609 commandments that there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so take all 613 commandments And you can boil them down into this single principle. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as you learn to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, learn to put that into practice in the way that you interact with your neighbor. Learn to put that into practice as you look in the mirror every day and you examine your own heart. Learn to put the practice of loving God with all of who you are into practice as you interact with the people around you. That is what the law was supposed to be about. God was training his people on how to live rightly with him, and therefore how to find life amidst the death of sin. Love was at the base of all of it. There were just 613 practical examples of how to live it out. And so some of you who have ever, you know, read the Old Testament, maybe the book of Leviticus, are like, yeah, right. Right. You're you're telling me there's just 613 examples of how to live this love out? What about all the weird laws in Leviticus? What are you going to tell me about those? How are those expressions of how to live out love? For those of you who have read the book of Leviticus, you might know what I'm talking about. There's some pretty odd things in there. And I don't have time to go into all of them, but I want to consider a few. And we're going to, this is going to become increasingly important as we talk about this. God knew that it was going to be pretty easy for man to go astray. God understood that we were going to fall and fail from this all the time. And so he encouraged his people to to set physical reminders up all around them that their one duty was to love God and apply that love to their neighbor. And so the commands, for instance, a couple of the, the more odd ones that we might consider, the commands to not plant your field with more than one type of seed, and to not wear clothing made of two types of material, right? Those have practical applications. Those are, those are practically purpose. Those have meaning in our society for the greater functioning of, of the culture. But the reason God is saying this is to say, every time that you wake up in the morning and you go to put on that cloak, notice that it's made of one fiber. Notice that it's whole. Notice that it's not blended. Notice that it doesn't have two things coming together to make one. And that is how you are also to live your life. When you go into this nation, this promised land that I'm about to give you, you're going to find all sorts of temptations. There are going to be all sorts of nations in that land. Don't be like them. And every time you wake up in the morning and put that cloak on, you're going to be reminded that you are not to be like the pagans it's the same with the field every spring when you go to plant your crops and every fall when you go to harvest them you're going to be reminded that you are not to be like the pagan nations around you that is what god is trying to communicate by this great reminder of not to wear clothing made of two different types of material and not to plant your your fields with more than two types of grain one type of grain it's kind of like god was telling his people to put post-it notes all around their house and all around their life so that it could constantly be a reminder of what it meant to follow God. So you might put a post-it note, for instance, above your sink saying, hey, why don't you show love to your family by putting this cup in the dishwasher instead of just leaving it on the counter? Bunch of the wives could appreciate that, right? Or maybe you put one on your mirror in the bathroom stating, to better love those who share this space, clean it up after yourself. Or maybe you'd put one on your TV that says, to better love myself, inspect what is watched on this thing. Or the kids, you, you might put one near the place where you play, which says, to better love my parents, I need to clean up this room when I'm done playing in it. Or you might put one on your dashboard of your car stating, to better love myself, why don't I listen to something uplifting than rather than trashy celebrity gossip talk radio? Or you might put one at work in your cubicle or in your office that says, to better love my co-workers. why don't I encourage them today? Why don't I seek out those who look lonely? Why don't I eat lunch with someone new today? Don't gossip about my boss. Don't gossip about my coworkers. They were physical reminders that you would constantly run into. And that's what God is hoping to do with a lot of these laws. And so you're saying, okay, I, I get the idea. I get, I get what you're saying. And so there's this other command: do not cut the hair at the sides of your beard or clip off the edges of your beard, as Leviticus 19.27. If you look earlier in this chapter in Leviticus, God tells his people that when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the alien. And so, get this, every time that an Israelite looked at another Israelite with a beard, what were they to be reminded of? Be generous. Be generous with what you have. Don't, Don't be so stingy that you need to go over your crops a second time. Leave that for the alien. Leave that for the poor. You get how all these commands, so many of the commands are all about these reminders to say, as you look at another man, you will be reminded that you are called to be generous. As you wear that tunic, you will be reminded that you are not to be like the pagans. As you plant your crops, as you harvest your crops, you will be reminded that you are not like to be like the world, but you are to be holy. You are to be set apart. You are to be a person infused with love. That is what so many of the commands are about, these reminders. God is calling his people with 613 practical applications, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. But there is a problem. And there's a real problem in our current day as we talk about this. Because in our current days, we talk about love as an idea. It's a a problem. Because love in our culture is basically a meaningless term as sad as that is to say it's basically a meaningless term it's lost all of its significance it's become ambiguous and it's stretched too thin go ahead and type love into a dictionary and see what you're going to find here's what you're going to find i'll do it for you you'll find that the ra- the range of meanings stretch from passionate affection sexual desire a strong liking a tennis score Benevolent affection, care for another well-being, another's well-being, and a word used in communication to represent the letter L. Love has found its way into every genre of music, every genre of television, every genre of commercial, every genre of business slogan, every plot line. Love is everywhere. It's saturated our culture. It's, it's, It's literally everywhere in our culture. And some might consider this to be a good thing, but usually what happens with saturations is that they lose their meaning. They get stretched too thin. You take out all the significance when you do that. And I think that's happened with love. Because when Elmo tells us that he loves sunny days and birds that go tweet, 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 what is he really telling us? What does he really mean when he's saying that? When Elmo tells us that he loves caterpillars and when the sky is blue, but that most of all, Elmo loves you, what is he really saying? Is he saying anything? I think of my own life, and you can think of your own. What are the things that you love? I love the Minnesota Twins. I love the color orange. Oh, come on. What? they're in the american league you can love the twins and the phillies it's fine (laughs) i love my wife i love my children i love ice cream i love mexican food oh um, by the way i love god now what what am i saying What what are any of us saying when we say things like this right We have one language, in our language, we have this one term called love. And we try to cram all of these various definitions into this one little term called love. But so many of you probably know this. In the Hebrew and the Greek languages, the languages that the Bible was written in, by the way, they had multiple terms to express the different faces of love. And so let's look at the Greek language. They had three terms to express love in the Greek language. Eros, storge, and phileo. Eros was a term that signified sexual desire. We get our term erotic from this Greek word eros. It's the sexual passion. It's the love of lovers. It's, it's that love that creates the, the butterflies in your stomach when that special someone walks in the room and you get all excited. That's eros. But friends, it's the most transient of all the loves as well. It's the most fleeting. It's the one that fades away and evaporates into thin air. There was another term called storge that they used. Storge was the love of a parent for a child. This is a very unique love. For anybody who is a, a parent here, you know that the love you have for your children is unique. And, and it's, it's, it's unlike any of the other loves. It's, it's hard to even explain, and, and I'm not even a mother. The mother relationship between a mother and a child is so unique and Storge is so profound in that that I, as a father, can't even relate to how my wife Emily loves our children. They have a special bond that I will never understand. There's a third term called phileo. This term actually is used in the New Testament a few times. It's the love of affection. You, some of you may know that the term Philadelphia comes from this root word phileo. Philadelphia is a conjunction of two Greek words phileo and adelphos. Adelphos meaning brother. You get the name, the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia. It's a love of affection. It's the cherishable love. It's, it's the love I have for sunny days. It's the love I have for the color orange. It's the love I have for Mexican food. It's the love I have for my good friend Tom. But when the writers of the New Testament, not even the New Testament, when the the translations of the Hebrew to the Greek were being developed, they looked at this love that was expressed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament word is hesed or ahava. And then they saw that it was so unique, it was the love of God for his people. It was so unique it actually defined who God was it was this covenantal relationship that God was in with his people and they said none of these words express that kind of love and so they made a new one up does anybody know what that new word was agape they created a term called agape to express this new kind of love agape is unconditional it doesn't matter what you look like or what you sound like. It doesn't matter who you are. My love for you will always be consistent. Agape is enduring, meaning that it is everlasting and eternal. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to die out. It doesn't matter how you treat me. My love will persist. Agape is a choice, meaning that once it is made, it does not rely upon how I feel about you in order to extend that love. It's a choice that I make. It's not based on a feeling. It's not based on affection. Agape is other-oriented, meaning that it has nothing to do with how I feel. It has nothing to do with me. It has all to do with you. And agape is self-sacrificial, meaning that it's going to cost me something to extend this to you. I'm going to have to die a little bit to myself in order to extend this to you. Agape is the term that John comes to use to describe who God is. In 1 John 4, 8, he says God is agape. It is a term that describes God's love for humanity. It is this term used when Jesus says that the world will know who my followers are by their love. It is the idea of love that we are to have for God, for one another, and also for ourselves. Agape is the term that the New Testament uses in all but a small handful of times. The other ones being phileo, by the way. And so every single time that the Bible speaks of love, in all but a very small couple of instances, it's talking about this other-oriented, unconditional, self-sacrificial, costly, you-oriented, choice-based love that we are to make for one another so we as Christians are to make the choice to treat all others unconditionally and self-sacrificially because it was understood that when agape is absent from any behavior, that behavior became death. Remember the tree that we had last week? When agape was absent from any behavior it was understood, that behavior came death. It was even the case with all the other loves. Storge, that is absent from agape, it's, it's not parenting, it's tyranny. Phileo, that is absent of agape, it's not friendship, it's tolerance. Eros, that is absent of agape, it's, it's, it's not love, it's lust. The entire Christian lifestyle can be summed up in this one word, agape. Because it is agape, the love that is from God, that defeats sin, that defeats death. And if you or anyone you care about wants to live, then agape, then love. And in light of this knowledge, let's get back to Deuteronomy. The text says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. It's the Hebrew equivalent of the word agape. It's ahava, with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now notice what this is saying, right? It's like every single conversation we are to have, make love the point of your conversation. Make it the primary focus. As you're walking on the road or driving in your car or lying in bed at night or sitting around the dinner table or watching the Super Bowl or watching a Phillies game or whatever other activity you are doing, make love the primary focus of your conversation and your activity. And so think about this. Today when you're sitting around a table full of friends or you're sitting debriefing your day with your spouse or you're talking with a coworker around the water cooler, What is the kind of conversations you're having? What kind of conversations do you have with your coworkers? What kind of conversations do you have with your spouse? What kind of conversations do you have with your roommate? What kind of conversations do you have with your neighbor? Is it full of celebrity gossip? Is it about the latest, you know, craziness that Justin Bieber is doing? Or is it, maybe we should take a minute and pray for Justin Bieber? Or is it, man, you will not believe what that guy did over there. You won't believe how that guy keeps showing up late and how he can't get his act together. Can't believe he hasn't been fired yet. Or is it, maybe we should go and help him. Maybe there's something wrong with his family life that we could help him with that makes him perennially late to work every day how can we be more generous with our activity and how can we treat people equally and unconditionally and how can we reach out to those in need that should be the topic of our conversation is your conversation caring is it gentle is it patient or is it fueled by anger and and rage and impatience and hatred does your conversation encourage people or does it tear people down Or do you converse at all? My wife and I intentionally made a decision when we bought our minivan to not get a minivan with DVD players in it. Because we didn't we didn't want, in our own situation, we didn't want our kids to always have a screen in front of their face when we could take those drive times to talk to them about who God is. And if you have a DVD player in, in your minivan, then I'm not faulting you for that, but you might want to learn to make a decision to say maybe this... 10-minute drive doesn't need a video on or maybe this two-hour drive maybe we could have a conversation with our kids instead of having them put their earplugs in or maybe when you're sitting around the dinner table and this assumes that we actually eat together as families maybe we're sitting around the dinner table does everybody have a screen in front of their face is everyone on a phone we are going to miss out on all these incredible opportunities to teach one another what it means to find life in God, to be more loving with our time, and to impress this such incredible truth upon our children. If we don't get out from behind the screens, if we don't start spending time with one another, if we don't start talking to our children at night about what it means to, to love their school children and their friends at school. We're going to miss out on these incredible opportunities. I was at a birthday party yesterday for my son Ethan, and I was talking to one of the other moms there, and I was telling her about my family and how this wonderful, delightful baby girl, Sophia, she's an 8-month-old. And she's a delight. She she brights up any room, she smiles and she is happy and she is wonderful and she is so joyful. And I just love her and she makes this world a uh, this little tiny part of her world, a wonderful place. And she was saying, yeah, all eight months do that. All all eight month olds do that. And she was like, just wait till she's 10. Wait till she's 10 and she gets this attitude. Wait till she's 10 and she starts disrespecting you. Wait till she's 10 and she starts smarting off and cursing you out. And my thought was, does that need to be the case? Does Sophie have to grow up to be this 10-year-old who is disrespectful of me? Does Sophie have to grow up to be this 10-year-old who has this, this attitude and r- rebellious attitude that is hateful and, and disrespectful and, and rude and impatient? Does she have to be that way? Is that just the expectation of our society that when our children turn 10, they're going to turn into little monsters? Daniel McClear, how old are you? It doesn't, does it? And I'm like, man... My wife and I are doing all that we can to to raise our children up. We're we're taking these these intentional decisions to not have screens in our car and to not let our children play on phones all the time. We're taking these decisions decisions to to say we are going to impress this law upon our children as we walk along the road, as we as we eat around the table as we lie down at night we are going to talk about what it means to love god with all of our heart soul mind and strength and we're going to raise our children in a way that they're not going to be monsters when they're 10 years old that they're going to be respectful that they're going to say please that they're going to say thank you that they're going to learn to love it does not need to be that way i want to teach sophia that she was made to run on a certain type of fuel And that if she chooses to run on a fuel other than love, that she is going to experience horrible consequences in this life. That she won't be happy, she won't be full of joy, she'll be angry, she'll be bitter. And so why is this so important? Because all activity that is not infused with agape, the Bible tells us, is death. We are dead when we do not love. And so God knew his people would struggle with this, right? So he called them to create reminders that they would constantly run into. And so the text continues. It says to tie this command as a symbol on your hand and bind them on your forehead to write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so the Jews took this literally and they created these reminders. They created these things called phylacteries, these things I talked about earlier. There were little boxes that they would wear on their wrists. And inside the box, they had the Shema, which is what this text is saying. The Shema means to hear. And it said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength in it. And they would wear that on their wrists as a reminder that every activity that I'm to do with my hand needs to go through the filter of love for God. And so they created these phylacteries, and they also put them on their foreheads. Man, those, those ancient tear bands, man, those are cool things. They would wear them on their foreheads to say that, man, every single thing that I am to think should go through the filter of love for God before it comes out my mouth or it comes out my hands. And they created these things called mesozoots. The same little wooden boxes with the same little scroll that said the same thing, and they put them on the door frames of their house, and they put them on their gates. Every time they walked in their gate, every time they walked in their house, they would tap it. And they'd say, this house is going to be defined by the love for God, as it spills out on the love of all of the people. And these, like many of the commandments, functioned as reminders that they had a single duty to love God and to apply that love to their neighbors and to themselves they reminded every time they walked into their house that this house lived to love God. It's a reminder that maybe we should all recreate. Put something in your own household that says, let this household be a rem- be, be defined by our love for God and let it spill over. And every time they used their mind, every time they developed a thought, every time they spoke those thoughts and strategized business plans and did their taxes, they were reminded that how they are to think and apply those thoughts should be done in love for God. Maybe some of us need that reminder as we prepare our taxes this year. And not only this, but the Jewish people every single morning gathered their family together. And they would state the Shema together as a family. They would say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then every time before they went to bed at night, they would gather their family together again. they would say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because everything in between those two bookends was to be defined by this love for God. They literally surrounded their life with this command. And it became the filter by which they thought and by which they moved and by which they existed as a people because this expressed a way of life that was rightly lived in, with God. And the problem that we have run up against today is that instead of changing our behaviors, and this is really the problem that has persisted over the last 2,000 years or so, instead of changing our behaviors to fit through this filter of love, we've changed the filter to to fit our behavior. And do you know how dire of a problem it is? That you know how horrible of a problem that is? Instead of changing our behavior to fit through the filter of love, which again defines right relationship with God, we change the filter to church attendance or going to the confessional booth or, or or, saying Hail Marys or receiving communion or being baptized or simply being a good person. But if what comes through that filter of your actions and mind is not a deep-seated love for God poured out upon the world for others, it is not Christ and it is not Christian. And so what is this going to look like for us? When you get home From church today, you're going to sit down, and you're going to watch some TV, maybe. You're going to do some other things around the house, and someone is going to have to go make lunch. Someone's going to sit down on the couch, and the other person's going to go and make lunch. (laughs) And maybe you're like, man, you know, I've gotten this habit of of making my spouse go and, and do all the work. Maybe it would be loving of you to get up off the couch and go serve him or her today. Maybe you're walking by that sink full of dishes that you all just think is magically gonna get done. Maybe you take the 15 minutes and you go do it yourself. Maybe when you're driving in your car and you get cut off by that guy on the highway, and you can feel just the blood start to boil inside of you and you're like, you're just compelling with all of your might to keep your finger down. Maybe instead of acting out in rage, and anger towards that person, you say, God, bless that person today. Be near that person today. And maybe while you're driving in your car, you keep your screens tucked away and you have a conversation with the people who are with you. Maybe when you go back to work or school tomorrow, you recognize that there's that lonely kid again that the kid who always has to sit by themselves at the lunch table, maybe it would be loving of me to go and sit next to them, get to know them a little bit. Or there's that coworker who everyone just talks about and gossips about nobody really likes and everyone hates to go over to them and talk to them because they think it's going to ruin their own reputation. Maybe you put your pride aside for a little while and you go over to that person and you say, "Well, wow, you are a human being deserving of love. Maybe God is calling me to extend it to you. Maybe, in store, maybe instead of throwing everything in the trash, you actually look at that little label and you notice that it can be recycled and you put it in the recycling bin instead. And you preserve our planet for another day because of it. There are literally an infinite amount of applications for how you might love today. But I'm not calling you to love in an infatuary kind of, kind of way. I'm not calling you to love in a phileo kind of way. I'm not calling you to love even in a storge kind of way. I'm calling you to love in an agape kind of way. A love that is self sacrificial. Look to the benefit of others and give of yourself so that they might receive life. Do it as a choice that you make. Don't do it only because you feel like doing it. And do it not because they look like you or not because they talk like you or not because they like the same things that you like. Do it because they are human beings. And do it because God is love, and he has called us, therefore, to love one another. Amen? Please stand for the benediction. You were designed to live off a certain type of fuel, Restoration Church, and if you do not live off of that fuel, you will experience the chaos that ensues because of it. If you choose not to infuse love within your relationships, if you choose not to infuse love within your behavior, you will experience the chaos that ensues because of it. I guarantee you, you will. And so let us learn together to fill our own little personal gas tanks with the love of God, because that is how we are to experience life in this world. Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to reveal to us what it means to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, God. Within our own finite minds, we, we, we just can't. We can't even ponder, God, all the infinite examples and ways that this could be done on a given day. But God, I do know that our default within our sinful nature is to be selfish, and that is the complete opposite of what it means to be loving. And so, God, by your strength, May you teach us the love. And may we walk away from this place more like you because of it. May we receive all the glory for all the good that is done by our lives and by this church. In the name we pray these things. Amen.